Eliot speaks directly to that in one of the quartets. So instead of reading from the regular edition today, I'm going to read this passage. The passage is taken from East Cover. I'm going to read the beginning and then skip to this um, this passage that focuses our attention on this one issue. Heath Coker begins this way. Um, Eliot has written four quartets. Um, they intersect and interweave with each other. Each one has its own distinct theme, its own distinct setting, but there are these motifs that carry through. At the center of them all is Eliot's notion of what he calls the still point. And those of you who did Dante will remember that. When Dante and um, Beatrice reached the back of the universe. Remember, they started from Earth when they left the purgatory and went through the heavens until they come to the back of the universe. So he stands on the back of the universe looking at the entire created world as we know it. And um, when he looks, he, he sees two visions that paradoxically invert each other. From one perspective, he looks at the center, and it's the slowest part of the universe with the planets moving around it more and more quickly. From another, he sees the, the center as a still point moving so fast it's still and moving outward. There are two different perspectives with respect to good that intersect, so it's a paradox. But, but this notion of the still point, it's that image that expresses the intersection between time and eternity. And for Dante, Dante that, or, and, and Eliot um, both, that image in some sense defines what our life ought to be with Christ. That at every moment somehow we should be standing here in time, but with him outside of time. You know, often in the in script... <laughs> Wait a minute, because I, I don't want to... I kind of lost. <laughs> what to do with him? <laughs> Where we? Be grateful. Uh, yeah, my mind it just went. Um, what were they going? Um, oh, in the Bible, in the Bible, we've got these. You know, Paul says, "I don't judge by human standards." He says that repeatedly. And somewhere else in the Bible, we're, we're asked to always make judgments according to to eternity. We were supposed to make our judgments there. Um, so this image of the still point is not a small one. Now my mind's clear. What that, sorry. <laughs> For, what did you, I missed it. What did you say? Oh, I just said what you're describing, Einstein's theory of relativity. Yeah, except... Something goes so fast. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Except I, his theory would have lacked an absolute transcendent perspective, I think. But I'm not... I'm going, to let, I'm going to let that go. Um, outside of time, outside of time. Um, anyway, this, that, that's a major image in, um, in this, okay? Um, and one of the other is that, that um, time past and time present are always together, that there's a simultaneity in time and, and it's important for us to somehow um, be aware of that and live it. The, the Bible would say, Christ would say, li live, and we've seen this from the very beginning, almost every one of our books, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the coming out of the past into the present, and particularly for Dante, when you come out of the past into the present, 
and live the present, not living in the burdens of the past, you know, not letting the wounds sink us, not trying to escape them by living in the future. We're supposed to live in the present moment because in that present moment, we're intersected with God's time because for God, there's nothing but a present. There is no past or future for him. So to live holy in the present is one of the hardest things we're called on to do. It means giving, not letting, not letting the past constantly drag us back or try to escape into a future that's not yet. We're supposed to live with hope, but in the here and now. Okay? So that's one of the major themes of the four quartets. I'm saying that because you'll catch some sense of that in the beginning of East Coker. I'm not going to read the whole poem. It's, it's too long, but I just want to read the beginning to sort of introduce you to the passage that I want to get to. East Coker. In my beginning is my end. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field, or a factory, or a bypass, old stone to new building, old timber to new fires. We live in a world of becoming and passing away. It's the nature of our world, it's a temporal order. Um, old fires to ashes and ashes to the earth, which is already flesh, fur and feces, bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf. Houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loosened pain and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered heiress woven with a silent motto. In my beginning is my end. Remember, those of you who did Dante, as Dante got closer to the Imperium, to God, he, get, he went back to beginnings. He saw his, his great-great-grandfather, then he saw Adam, then he saw Christ, yeah, because he was going back to beginnings, because we all came from him. You know, our great-grandfather, Adam, and ultimately Christ, because Christ is the one who made everything. In my beginning is my end. Now, and, sorry, and those of you remember the Aeneid. Without even knowing it, when he, when he was given the prophecies that he had to leave when Rome was destroyed, and, or I mean when Troy was destroyed, he had to go on to found Rome. He discovered that in going back to Italy, um, he was returning to the home, his ancestor. He didn't even know it. So the whole movement of the Aeneid is away from Troy to Rome and his beginnings. So this notion is that we only find ourselves somehow as we move forward in going back to our starting points. We have to bring those two together somewhere in our life. In my beginning is my end. Now the light falls across the open field, leaving the deep lane shuttered with branches, dark in the afternoon, where you lean against a bank while a van passes. And the deep lane insists on the direction into the village into the electric heat, hypnotized. In a warm haze, <coughs> a sultry light <coughs> is absorbed, not refracted, by gray stone. But lie asleep in the empty silence. Wait for the early owl. Notice he's going to slip into Middle English for a second here. You'll hear it. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, 
On a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe, the little drum, and see them dancing around the bonfire. <coughs> the association of man and woman in Donsinga signified matrimonia, a dignified and commodious sacrament, two and two necessary conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm, which it betokeneth concord round and round the fire. We're going back into old English, into our beginnings, in this image of a marriage, you know, in the, in the forest there. It'll go on. Um, <clears throat> in the third section, it begins this way. Each, each quartet is broken into sections. It's exactly modeled on a string quartet with its different parts. So the analogy here is music. <clears throat> the third section. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant. The captains, merchant bangers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors, all go into the dark, and dark the sun and moon, and the, uh, the almanac, de Gotha, and the stock exchange gazette, the directory of directors. It's all the important it, professions that all of us tend to get preoccupied with and the manuals that go with them. You know, that, and he's saying that in some ways this preoccupation with the world takes us into the darkness, that we're getting away from the light. Um, and the Stock Exchange Gazette and the Directory of Directors and cold the sense and lost the motive of action. And we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there's no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. Because one of the problems in our world, and I know you all know this, is that as we think we move in the light, we understand things, we grasp them, if we're professionals, we've got a professional grasp, people praise us, we think we live in the light, but in relationship relative to God, this is the darkness. The real light is Him. And the more we get drawn into the world, the deeper we go into that darkness and away from the light. So he says, <clears throat> I said to my soul, my soul be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings with the movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that the hills and the streets, the distant panorama, and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away, whereas when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations, and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. 
so the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. And then he goes back to the garden image and the dancing and the marriage that he described earlier. What's the point of this? It's a different language, but Ike is giving up everything. He's virtually renouncing the world, and that decision is going to cost him everything. People will not understand it. Major Compson in Spain, who were two of his mentors, are disappointed. They think he's failed them. Kaz thinks he's failed them. This is the, the debate that we're going to look at shortly. And something's going to happen in Delta Autumn, which is going to raise the question even more darkly. Should he have done it? Uh, but we have to wait until we get there. Okay, let's, let's pick up, go down Moses and... Um, last week, we, we ended with the end of section three. And I suggested last week that um, I've been raising this question weekly, if there's something going on in Faulkner's writing and the way he writes that implies Christ, whether we can find him there, not just in a person, but what's going on. Remember two things that happened in the last couple of weeks that stand out. One is um, Sam Fathers and the old people helped Ike to see the spirit of the deer. So we know that early on he was being taught to see things the other hunters never did. Um, and in the old people, it opens with Ike killing the deer, and then later, when they settle into that um, stand again for the next kill, Walter E. Wells' rifle goes off, and there's that moment when, when Faulkner describes Ike. Um, he responded with the truculence of a boy who missed his chance. That hard truculence, the whining, you know, that I missed him, and we can see it so vividly. And then Sam says, wait. And they wait. Sam's behind him. And then suddenly Ike sees the, the spirit of the deer coming out of the horn announcing its death. And the, the, the deer is described beautifully. It's stately. It's not, it's, there's, there's nothing suggested it's been mortally wounded. It survives its wound. I mean, it's its spirit, right? It doesn't die. So there's this beautiful description of the stateliness that the deer was taller than a man. He looked without fear, slow, stately, moving, going by. So Ike sees the spirit, and then as he passes, Sam holds up his hand and says, Ole, grandfather. Now think even about the word grandfather. I mean, that's a, that's a generation relationship. So he's related to the old things that don't die, that still survive. And at that, that story ends with um, Ike and Sam approaching Ewell, looking over the, the deer that he's killed and pointing to the tracks and saying, I'll swear, if, how did he put it, I'd swear there was another deer here. You know? And, and the, the, all that does is underline the irony, because there was another deer and he didn't see it. So we see early on that Ike is learning to see things other people don't. And I suggested, I think last week, when I was thinking about it as I came to our, our time together, that um, Catholics, should find some support for their faith in this because there's so much about the way we live our faith that separates us from the world. Fundamentally, the Eucharist. Um, I think most people, the, certainly the Protestant world, the 
by and large Protestant world, looks as us as cannibals. Are you kidding? Eating flesh and blood? It's a cannibalistic act. And yet for us it's scriptural. Um, and, and not only that, fairy tale-ish. I mean, that's one of the reasons I believe in it, because I believe in fairy tales. Um, that we actually take Christ in as a human and God perfectly combined in one. And we talked about the Eucharistic, Luther's notion of consubstantiality, that Christ is present but the bread is not completely transformed. That's heretical. It goes back to the notions that Christ is not completely man or God. He's, he is perfectly one, which is why we have the Eucharist the way we do. So uh, for a Catholic, this stuff should be old hat. It should be familiar. I mean, what Sam is teaching Ike is to see things, to show him something that's there that other people don't see. The other, and, and the other hunters are trained for that. That's what they've been spending their life doing. So we saw that in the old, in the old people. Then in the, in the bear, we saw that moment when, when Ike begins to go out on his own to learn to take what Sam has taught him and apply it himself. So he begins to track old Ben. And he finally reaches a point where he has to give up the gun. And then he, ha he realizes that's not enough. And then he has to give up the compass and the watch. And it's when he does that that he steps into that glade and it's there that he and Ben behold each other. And I suggested then that that's, that's an Edenic moment, that Ike has stepped out of that hunter's coat. There's no longer a predator and a prey, a hunter and a hunted. It's an animal and a man standing in mutual regard. It is what St. Thomas would call the spirit of connaturality, the sympathy between them. Even though, I, 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 I want to be careful here because I don't want to overstate something. Even though there's a sense that there's still a fear over everybody. The bear has to go away. I cast to return. They live in a fallen world. And, and that's only the prelude to what's going to happen a couple of years later because finally they're going to track him down and kill him. But those moments are important because what we recognize, what we see is that... <coughs> that because of what he's learned from Sam Fathers, this old way, that he doesn't stand with other people. And in a sense, it prepares him for what's going to happen in section four to make this renunciation. Um, so it w the ending of three was important. And I, I think I suggested, I'm actually I'm losing track because I, I get I, the, the madness that's in my head. Because I, I do this on Monday nights, sometimes I forget where I am and what I've said with each, I get lost, so. Um, so I'm always begging pardon for you guys. I, I can't remember what I've said and what I haven't. But um, I suggested that, or I did to Monday, I can't remember, but that um, the end of three is really important for this reason. Um, I, I use the word enchantment to describe one aspect of what's going on here, because remember, I grew up as a boy, seven, eight, nine, looking forward to 10, when he could take his place. And Faulkner's description of, um, of Ike during that period is one we can, we can see in terms of an enchantment. He dreams. He has this dream of old Ben. He looms in his dreams. He's larger than life. 
And Faulkner's descriptions of him correspond to that. I mean, he, he's um, an apotheosis. He's, a, he's an, an image of something um, um, invincible, indomitable in the wilderness that, that can't be defeated, um, even though he is. Um, he, he looks forward to it. His life is defined, in one sense, in terms of it, in the bear. And so is it for Sam. And all of them seem to recognize Sam more than, Sam more than anybody, that they can't finally get old Ben without the right dog. And then he discovers lion. And, and by the way, one of the, one of the words for Christ in, in, is what? The lion of Judah. That, that dog is named lion. I mean, whether that's a conscious allusion to Christ, I don't know, but Faulkner is, he's, he's so aware of all of this. Um, they can't get the old, they can't get old Ben without the right dog. And we went through that, that section where Ike is learning to read tracks, remember, and the hunters can't read them. He's learning to read tracks. He learns to distinguish the voices of the dogs, and he learns to see the expressions on men's faces because he recognizes that the men think it's one thing and Sam knows it's another. So he's learning to see people more deeply than they do. Um, so we're watching a kid, um, I don't know what to call it, growing into this amazing person and being prepared for this act. But section three ends with everything that he's lived for coming to an end. Um, when they kill old Ben, remember when there's that description of Boone or a lion lunging at him and then Boone going in because he loves lion. And Faulkner describes him almost as, as a statuary, you know, that they, they poise for that moment and then topple over. And, and then you remember what happened. I don't want to go through it all. But the important thing that I want to emphasize here is at that moment, Sam collapses. And the doctor comes. Remember, um, Boone wants him to fix Lion before he takes care of him. And, um, and, and then they leave thinking that Sam is OK. They know he's exhausted. That's the doctor's analysis. Another misreading. He's not exhausted. Everything he's lived for. What does he have to live for anymore? You know? Old Ben was like an image of everything great in the wilderness that as an Indian he had lived for. That, that section ends, Old Ben is dead, Lion is dead, Sam is dead. When McCaslin comes back, remember there's that exchange between him and they're furious with each other and, um, and um, Kaz is saying, I would have done it too, Boone, I would have done it too. And then it ends with Ike saying, God damn it, leave him alone, leave him alone. Um, he loves Sam. And, and what, we don't know what happened. Um, there's some chance that Boone took his life. Some people, I think somebody suggested that Ike may have. It's hard for me to see Ike taking, if Boone were there, it's hard for me to see Ike taking his life. He's so young. But we're not sure what happens. What we do know is Sam's dead. What I suggested last week, or I thought, is that in a sense, and I'm, the reason I'm saying this is because it's really a setup for what's going to happen in um, Delta Autumn. Everything's gone. And, and the Keats poem that they will refer to in the section we're reading today, um, Truth is Beauty and Beauty, 
the, the, the image on that urn that's being described in the, in the Keats poem is that there's this urn and the lovers who are on the way to the wedding are caught in that moment. And Keats is saying, your love will never fail. You may never kiss her, you may never, the love may never be consummated, but that love will never go away because it's caught there. That's the beauty of the poem. And I'm quoting it then. Because what happens when the one thing that you've loved for all your life, you suddenly have it? The car you wanted, the education you wanted, the husband or wife that you wanted. When it's consummated, then what? I mean, all of us know that. I mean, one of the experiences is disillusionment. It's not what I thought it would be. Every one of us suffers through that. We, we went through this with Dante. Remember the, the siren? We enter into marriage with, with <laughs> Dante with eyes of idolatry. We make others more than they are. And then when we discover what they are, lots of people run. Am I, is, are, we, are you following me? So when section three ends, everything is gone. Now stop for a moment and think what happened with the disciples when Christ was on a cross. Everything that they had hoped for. And they still believed what happened. And how clear it was that they kept thinking he would be the Messiah that would issue in in a new state on earth. And he's gone. So all of their hopes, all of their dreams, gone. So section three ends on this dark moment of disillusionment and loss. And, and, we, all, and we also know it that, and we'd, if we didn't know it then, we get it in section four, um, Despain will sell the woods. A logging company will come in. It's already shrinking. Civilization is moving in. That it's not only the loss of old Ben and Sam, um, and, yeah, and, well, Boone's wounded, but it's the loss of the wilderness. Civilization is encroaching. So this is a dark, dark moment for the story. Um, and it seems to me it's got allusions to Christ. And it, it, it seems to me they're going to be realized in Delta Autumn. I don't want to get there. But that's where we were last time. Let me stop for a second because I want to go to section four. Any questions about... Any questions about um, three and, and what's just happened? It's really important to see that one aspect of that, that part of the story is enchantment. It's Ike living this dream, wanting it, and then getting it. But once you get it, you, we all know this. You, you, you think when you get this car, you're going to be happy forever. You get the car, and it starts getting scratches and dings, and suddenly you want a new car. <laughs> <laughs> Another one. I, I keep thinking of that line by St. Augustine, um, my soul is restless until it rests in thee. His understanding is that God made us with infinite desires. So we're always going to be... The only, the only way our souls will come to rest is in an infinite object. So long as we keep putting infinite desires on finite things, we will constantly want more. So disillusionment will be an ongoing experience in our lives. Either that, or we turn to Christ. Any, any questions about three before we turn from three? I think the parallels with Christ and the disciples are something like that was going on and something like that is going on here.
Did you have something you look like you're no? <laughs> Come on, I know you've got something. I know it's, it's, it's something, but you know, this loss of the wilderness seems to have a bigger, bigger something out there that we haven't you know, quite touched on yet. Yeah. I'm sure it's coming. But yeah. Well, it's a part of all of it. I mean, it, I don't, I don't know it that it's going to up in the next. Yeah. In the, yeah. Uh, next chapter. Four. Delta Hawk. Oh, and that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it's bitter. Really bitter there. So I'll, I'll wait till then. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's. Um, some of the themes, just, I'm just going to touch on, I'm not going to, I'm going to name them and go on because I really want to get to section four. Last week we looked at the land, the hunt, and I asked you to think about the, the dialectic, the debate between Kaz and Ike in terms of a hunt, that they're pursuing something, that the, that the metaphor the, of the hunt permeates the work. It, it, it's an image that des- that's adequate to describe a lot of activities. We saw it in the marriage, the female-female relationship, not just the animals. It dominates the bear, the hunt. Um, it's one of the ways in which we can look at the debate between cats. They're trying to get to something. They're pursuing something, even though in, in, in absolutely contrary ways, because Ike has carried forward something that he had from seeing old Ben. He's giving it up. He's relinquishing it. Kaz is defending it. He wants, he wants the land. The city, the wilderness is retreating. The, the theme of education, Remember that Ike is receiving a, a, an important kind of edu- education from Sam that obviously none of the other um, hunters have. And I think we're to assume that very few boys do have. I mean, if, if you looked at the other boys, they're probably all playing baseball. You know, Ike is hunting. Um, language and enchantment. I'm going to come back to language because it's really crucial to what's happening here. Um, Um, tonight, these things. Don, sorry. <clears throat> Ike was supposed to be back in school. Yeah. The whole thing about that. Yeah. And then McCaslin lets him stay another week. Only when Despain says, because Cass says, no, you're going, you're going to school. Cause you, and Ike keeps saying, oh, I have to stay, I have to stay. And it's finally when Despain, I think, I, didn't I read that criticism where he spoke to Kaz and said, this boy grew up mowing. You've got one foot in a bank all the time. I think I read that, didn't yeah, I? Did. Yeah. Um, that he sees that Ike has got something that Kaz doesn't. You know, Kaz wants him to go back to school. Um, there's another kind of schooling that goes on. How important is that always, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure we've all reached that point in our lives. We think school is going to do it all, but um, we pay a fortune and there's so much more going on in the world. And, I, and I, please do not hear me um, be negative about education. I think it's absolutely essential. I'm just sorry to see what's done with it so often today. But um, Here's a couple of things I'd, I'd like us all to think about um, as, as we move forward, because we're going to be completing this work. That it's an epic. Again, I said this about Moby Dick, that most people look at Moby Dick as a novel. It's an <coughs> epic. It has that epic scope. 
It, it has to do with a people. In the same way Moby Dick did. Remember, it's a people. The Pequod represents in miniature America. Every aspect of society is represented there. They're all called isolados. They're all individualistic. They come from different parts of the world, but they represent the heterogeneous character of America. And, uh, and, on, and on, on a quest out is the nature of America. Um, before we leave, before we leave this work, I'm going to, at the very end, I want to take a few minutes and put the two works together to describe the differences because it, it's, I think it's really important to put them together to see. And I think we'll see, we'll be in a position to see more then how different they are. It's epic scope. Repeatedly in the dialogue between Kaz and Ike, they go back to Eden and most especially to Canaan. Because it's really clear from the discussion that these two figures see the South as a Canaan, a, of, of a people coming into the promised land. Now it's really crucial to see this because remember, for the early Americans there was the strong inbred sense that um, people were fleeing Europe. We already talked about that with Moby Dick. The, the, um, the Puritans and the uh, separatists had banded together in order to have the freedom to practice their religion. They came here, even though they had different beliefs. The Southern founding was different, but they still were bringing a Europe, and both the South and the North looked at Europe as if it, as if it were a fallen garden, particularly as they looked at the Catholic world, um, even though it had changed that, that Europe by that time is Catholic and Protestant. But there was this sense that coming to America was a chance to recover Eden. So there was the sense, very, very deeply a part of the American character, that, that America had come to this unfallen garden and, and um, Adam could recover what he'd lost. Well, what we see in Go Down Moses is, um, is Coming into Canaan, the promised land, has brought the same kind of curse on the south that the Jews brought into Canaan when they settled. Because you know the history after the settlement. Division, apostasies, exile. I mean, the last thing that anybody could say is that they came into the promised land and were settled. Their, their history after, after occupation was ongoing apostasies and violence. And finally, they were taken into exile, and so um, it's, it's really clear that, that Faulkner sees what's going on in the South um, as a reenactment of what happened biblically in Canaan. Um, we, we've talked before when we were doing Moby Dick about how um, America is a divided country, North and South, that there are really two very, very different cultures in both Melville and Faulkner made that clear. One of the most important comments I believe I've ever heard um, about the differences came from Flannery O'Connor, who's a modern Catholic writer. She's dead now. But, um, she said this, and she was speaking, I think, for um, a, a Southern people who were aware. Not everybody is. And she said, um, she put it, she said, one of the 
one of the differences between the North and the South is that the South became aware of itself after it lost the Civil War. Huh? Wait, talk. Um, what, what she was saying um, was this, um, just hold on to that. This is really important. The South became aware of itself after, after it lost the, after it was defeated. Because the, at that point, the South, because when you're fighting a war, you're too determined to win, right? You've got your mind there. Succession was not an option. There, in fact, this is one of the crucial lines of argument here that when Ike is saying they had to fight, and, and it's, it's almost as if they were, had God behind them. It's one of the lines of argument here. She said um, that after the, after the loss of the war, when the South became aware of itself, it became aware of its sin and its guilt. And it's that quality, that quality of self-reflection and, and an awareness of a sin that marks the South from the North, because the North has still not become aware of itself. And I want to try to put this in a broader perspective because it seems to me that's profound. Um, Suzanne and I got involved in a, in a um, alcohol drug um, program in the middle of our life when two of our sons were struggling and we hadn't even realized it and then found out about it. And it, we got involved in this program and it was a, a, a life-changing experience for me. Um, one of the revelations I had um, being involved in that program, our, our sons ran. <laughs> we stayed because it was just, uh, I mean, it was something to be aware of. Um, one of the revelations for me being in that program <laughs> and what I learned about myself is how innocent I was. Um, the, the, the strongest thing I took away from that program is if you're in a program like that working with kids who are struggling with problems, you become aware of how ignorant you are and how often the people who think they don't need, they don't have problems are the ones who, can, who are the ones most contributing to the problems themselves. It's like Oedipus's blindness. It, it became just stamped in me because I, I, I saw that the people who would not get involved in the program, those are the ones who are saying, I don't, I don't need to see anything. The ones who think there's nothing wrong with them are the ones who are really making the problems. It's only when you step into a world and you realize you got, you got things you need to deal with here. And that should be a part of our learning because as Catholics, we have to go to confession all the time. I mean, my understanding of our faith is that we should, we're, we're asked to bear our sins every day. My own, my own personal belief is if we're not picking up our sins every day, doing something about them, we're, what, what in the world, for what? They're supposed to be a help. It's like a guard. When you, I know for myself, it's exactly when we think we're okay, that for sure we're gonna do something we're gonna regret. I don't know that I'm speaking for everybody here, but I think there's some truth to that. Um, so Flannery O'Connor said, and I think it's true, that one of the things that set the South off is that it became aware of its sin and its guilt. It's going to lead Ike, you know this from the section, Ike is going to say, the, the South is cursed. Now that question is going to be enlarged, but I just want to put that out there, that 
And if you look at the writers from the North in America, name a writer who got close to what Faulkner is doing for the South in America and what he did for the world by doing that. He's the most, I think, probably the most, along with James Joyce, probably the most important novelist in the modern world, what he's laid bare. So what we're getting in this, in this book is um, the sin of the South unmasked. What we're going to get in section four is problem after problem after problem after problem. And when we get to the heart of it, those of you who've read it, you know what we're going to discover is a horror. What we find in the middle of section four is, in my mind, so far beyond anything we saw in Moby Dick. So this sense of an epic speaking for a people and the differences between North and South and, and the burdens that are peculiar to the South because of what happened in slavery and the Civil War, that we went to war over that issue, are absolutely central to this work. Language, important theme. I'm going to make it a theme. It's the language, the medium by which everything comes to us. And I want to say this because you know as you've read section four that you, <laughs> you keep coming in and out of incomplete sentences or or somebody jumping into the middle of something, you have nowhere the, no way of knowing where the beginning point was, the end point was, you know, he just keeps coming in. It's really important to see this. Let me read this because it's, um, reality is multi-leveled or, or multi-faceted. We know that. Like, reality is obscure. It's mysterious in some way. Language doesn't contain or limit reality. It serves it, or it should serve it. Reality isn't compartmentalizable. It's not susceptible to be put into neat packages or cupboards, even though we do that all the time. We use correct grammatical sentences all the time to express something in reality. But if anybody's a good writer, you know that very often what you're writing in neat sentences, something escapes you. You're not getting it. Faulkner is trying to find a language that is both discursive, correct, but also a way of rendering this multiplicity that we keep, other levels of reality keep coming in at times. So we're constantly asked to enlarge our view to step into mysteries, obscurities. That presents a serious problem to a reader, but I would say it also helps us to stand in the world in a way that's more faithful to reality than if we were to read, say, a Jane Austen novel. And you know how much I love her. Um, reality is multi-leveled, multifaceted. Language doesn't contain or limit reality. It serves it, or it should serve it. Reality isn't compartmentalizable. It's not susceptible to be put into neat compartments. It's mysterious. Language attempts to penetrate it, to not always be grammatically correct. I can't find an instance in Faulkner's writing where he's grammatically incorrect. I, I truly, he never, he never violates grammar as such. He uses it in a, in a way that challenges because it's so complex. But this whole question of language and words, um, which brings me to the next theme, and <laughs> when I thought about putting this on the board today, when I thought about, line, you know, the way I organize things neat and grammatically. <laughs> um, I thought about putting reading, 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 
reading. <laughs> you know, I've been hitting you guys over the head with this forever. Think about how important this is. You know how important reading is for old people. Ike's sandfathers is teaching Ike to read. Prints, nature, signs, to navigate it, to negotiate it, yeah? Um, to distinguish between the bear and his print. To distinguish the dogs. He's learning how to read signs. What do we do when we read a book? Words are signs. St. Thomas says words are signs of... We are reading signs all the time. Not, I'm, you, I'm, you know I'm not talking about stop signs and street corners. Everything we read are signs. Sam's teaching to read signs. What's the central activity? What's at the core of section four? Ike's reading the ledgers. Who reads ledgers? He picks out that ledger, and it's largely on the basis of what he discovers there that he makes his choice. Because what he discovers there is a horror. So this whole thing about reading and language, learning to read. How many people take pains? When he reads that, letter, that ledger, what happens to us, because it happens to, to Ike, is that this whole history suddenly becomes fleshed out. It's real. Layers of time coalesce, they become simultaneous one, and we begin to understand the fullness of what Ike has taken on in that. He's not just, he's not just making a choice, he's bearing a sin, and the nature of that sin is vast. I'm sorry Tom and Linda aren't here, really sorry they're not, because um, I know this would have spoken a lot to what they do. Okay, those are the, and the child of promise, it's ironic that, um, remember he's the child of promise. That, that, that theme of enchantment is an important one, the theme of promise is another, because remember, in coming into Canaan, they were entering the promised land. It was the place of promise. What we discover when we get in here is that what happens here is what happened to the Jews. That whole promise seems destroyed. But one of the last words in section four is the wife saying, just before she has sex with Ike, promise. She's using sex to, what's the word when you, extort. She's using sex to extort from him a promise that she'll have the farm. The only reason she's having sex with him, for the lamb. So here it is again. The fundamental sin at the root of this thing is the land. That once man begins to think the Jews in Canaan, the southerners in the land, that they can possess it, is that um, once, you have, once you enter into that kind of relationship so that you say it's mine, you carry that over into every other possible relationship you can have. It's with you. The wife saying promise because she wants the farm. We've been watching this all at Lucas with the, you know, the, the machine and um, the Civil War was about whether or not you could, whether you could um, own a slave, sell him. I mean, how would we feel if, if we, if those of you, you know, who's, who've been with, the Iliad was about treating men, treating other men as booty. They were a form of honor. You killed them. We're not, we're, we're with the Iliad right now. Um, if, if, if we re in fact, I, I believe that's what we do in our economy today anyway. We treat humans as if they're expendable. They're, the, 
danger for us all is that we treat human beings as things. Um, and remember, <laughs> there's, not a, there's not a section, in, there's not an event, not a happening in four that doesn't get traced back to this fundamental sin, this root, the possessiveness of the land. What does old Carruthers do in his will? He gives money to pay off, to pay off his debt. I, when he's, what, 18, 19, goes off to find Fonzabel, you remember, that, and James he can't find, and then he gives the money to Lucas. He's paying off a sin. So one of the fundamental questions here is, can you pay off? Can you buy off? How much does that define us in our life with each other when we're not even aware of it? Um, so these are, these are the major underlying themes, I think, of, of the bear and certainly section four. So let me stop. I want to go to uh, just see if I can quickly touch on this but so we can leave. Um, any questions here before we, before we, I really would love you guys to take some time when you think about it and stop and think about the diff because we're going to get to this, but you're in the middle of a novel now and I think it's a great, or an epic. Um, to begin to think about the differences between Moby Dick as a reflection of the North and a character. Who knows this stuff? When I think about people, historians, or I'm, there was a woman who's come from Australia who works out at the rec in the gym and she had all these comments about race problems in America and, and I thought about asking her something about North and South, but her whole way of dealing with it would be um, slaves, you freed them, they're free now, so everything's okay. How do you begin to talk about the differences between North and South if you haven't read a book like Moby Dick or Go Down Moses? I can't even begin. I mean, who would, who would understand you if you began to talk about North and South in these terms? Not many people, I think, but... Anyway, any questions before we look at, I want to go through some passages to try to root this in the text, just. <sighs> hmm? I said no questions. <laughs> I, but I know the wheels are turning off. Yes. <laughs> I don't have any question about that. Okay, let's, no, no, let's, let's look at the book, let's. Um, Oh, one, one other thing about this language, because I, um, you all know what a pamcest is. A pamcest is a is a manuscript, a page um, that gets written over a, an earlier page, so that you build up in a race pages as you go along. But you can very often see an earlier document through the surface page. It's called a pamcest. I think this is the way it's spelled, obsessed. Um, when we think about the language, um, it's not just, we shouldn't just be thinking about it in, in grammatical terms. We should be thinking about it structurally too and in terms of a pamcest. Because as you read along, it becomes clearer and clearer that Faulkner's helping us to see that what's going on at this time in America, in, the, in 1940, um, well after the Civil War, 
What's going on in America cannot be understood unless you set it against ancient Israel and the Israelites coming into Canaan. They were chosen as God's people to come to this promised land because they had a mission. And Faulkner is looking at the south as if it came here and it had a mission. And one of it, and he makes clear here, is that they seem to be much more, ironically, they seem to be much more concerned about man's freedom than the north. Even though the north went to war with them because they said, you're abusing freedom, you're, you're owning slaves. But it's really important to see that, that the way t- we have to read this by keeping that ancient culture, historic culture, with its religious mission in mind as we're reading. Science can get that. I, I don't think modern psychology, if, if, you, if you go into therapy with a person, somebody's going to look at your parents or who's going to look at your generation and who's going to look at yourself in relation to, to a culture that existed 2,000 years before. And yet that's what Faulkner is asking us to do. And just to give you one example, remember at one point in the, in the dialogue, Cass says, and the sons of Ham? Do you remember that? The sons of Ham. Who was Ham? Do you guys remember? Who was Ham? Who were the sons of Ham? Hmm? Do you remember what happened, Don? Yeah, he was. It, it's the sun. It's the sun where everything went wrong for Noah. Isn't that the one that went off by himself? He went off. Yeah, he went off. Ham. Ham is the sun. Noah got drunk, stewed. I mean, just drunk. And I guess was lying naked. This this is pretty clear in the in the. I'd spent ages since I've read it, but Noah got drunk, and Ham came in and saw his father, and knew he was drunk. And he went out and told his two brothers about it. And his two brothers backed into the room because it was a shameful thing to see your father. This is a godly man. He's going to save the race. Here's a, here's another Peter figure. I mean, he's just full of flaws. Um, they back into the room to cover their eyes and then cover him. When Noah wakes up, he realizes that somebody's covered him and knows that it's Ham and curses um, Ham as the father of Canaan. So he, he curses Canaan. So the curse on Canaan comes from Noah through his son. Is that clear? He curses Canaan. So Canaan um, lies under a curse after that. And what we see in the history, you know it, I mean, it, it gets borne out. So anyway, the point that I want to make here is that we, we ha- it's impossible to read this without seeing that it simultaneously lines up with. We're being asked to carry a story forward by analogy. And there's a religious dimension to it because it's biblical. It goes back to everything in scripture. Um, let's go to the beginning. Um, to, 
I, my section four starts on page 243. 241. It's going to be one or two page differences all along, so if you'll struggle with me for a minute. Then he was 21. Notice the then, lower caps. What is that? It's in medius race. Remember from the epic, in medius race, in the midst of things. We're in the middle of something. How appropriate for him to use grammar that way. It's not a cap, lowercase. It's like it's in mid-sentence because it's picking up something that's already in motion. So his grammar is apt, even, even though it seems grammatically incorrect, grammatically it's actually perfectly expressing what's going on. Then he was 21. Can't you tie that back to the first chapter? Yep. Because I, mean, I went back and if you read the first chapter and then skip over here. Yep. Yeah. yeah, picks up. It's the same narrative voice. And that same narrative voice is going to be interrupting constantly. I mean, that's actually, um, it, it's a good thing to keep that in mind. Remember, as I put it, I put brackets and then you've got all the stories. The narrator is outside. This anonymous communal is what I'm going to call him speaking. And then he intermittently comes in, particularly here in section four. Um, then he was 21. He could say it himself and his cousin juxtaposed, not, not against the wilderness. This is not against the wilderness. Remember, we're setting the wilderness and the land against each other because the land is that part of the wilderness that man attempts to control. It's contractual. It, it's under legal forms. Man possesses it. He, Treats it as if he can do whatever he wants with it. Juxtaposed not against the wilderness, but against the tame land which was to have been his heritage. <coughs> the land which old Carruthers McCaz and his grandfather had bought with white man's money from the wild men whose grandfathers without guns hunted it and tamed and ordered, or believed he had tamed and ordered it for the reasons that the human beings he held in bondage in the power of life and death had removed the forest from it and in their sweat scratched the surface of it to a depth of perhaps 14 inches in order to grow something out of which had not been there before and which could be translated back into the money. He who believed he had bought it had had to pay to get it and hold it and a reasonable profit too. What's the sin involved here? I mean, we know it's possessive. It's greed. Remember what for Dante, what's the great sin of the commercial regime? It's greed, <coughs> money. Um, there will be there will be that section later where he, where he sets what is against what should be, and the difference is that he says, why didn't men, instead of having hundreds and hundreds of acres? Why didn't men just have a few acres and work the land themselves? Why? Greed. I mean, what other reason? Hundreds of, look at, look at, so somebody could say, look at my money, look at my wealth, look at my sufficiency. He sets those two things against each other. He said, why, why didn't men just have a few acres or, and work the land themselves? Um, <clears throat> Go down, not against the wilderness, but against the land, not in pursuit and lust, but in relinquishment. Go down again, himself and his cousin amid the old smells of cheese. Remember, they're here, it's, he describes it, they're here at the commissary. 
not the heart perhaps, but certainly the solar plexus of the repudiated and relinquished, the square, galleried, wooden building, squatting like a parent above the fields whose labors it still held in thrall in 65. So the two of them are there appropriately, it seems to me, in the commissary, because the commissary is, in a sense, a image and miniature of the whole enterprise. It's a place of exchange where you sell all the tools and take in the cotton and send it out. And <clears throat> so it's here, um, going over, relinquish, McCasin said, relinquish. You, the direct male descendant of him, he goes on, um, um, describing what Sam or Ike is doing. And he says, worthy of bequeathment for his descendants' ease and security and pride and to perpetuate his name and accomplishments not only to the male descendants, but only and last descendant in the male line and in the third generation. While I'm not only four generations from old McCuthers, I derive through a woman, and the very McCaslin in my name is mine only by sufferance and courtesy. That is, he's saying, you have a greater right to this than I do. I mean, part, part of what Kaz is doing is saying, this should have been yours, you should be doing it, but he's, he's given it up. And, Kaz is taking it over. Um, pride in what that man accomplished, whose legacy and monument you think you can repudiate. You think you can repudiate. I can't repudiate. It was never mine to repudiate it, Ike says. It was never father's and Uncle Buddy's to bequeath me to repudiate, because it was never grandfather's to bequeath them to bequeath me to repudiate. Because it was never old Ikematubis to sell to grandfather for bequeathment and repudiation because it was never Ikematubi's father's father to bequeath Ikematubi to sell to grandfather or any man. Because on the instant when Ikematubi discovered, realized that he could sell it for money, on that instant it ceased ever to have been forever father to father to father and the man who bought it bought nothing. Bought nothing and he bought nothing. Because it was never his, he goes on to say it was God's. Um, Going over, this is um, where Kaz is describing what God does with it, where he talks about dispossessed. Well, let me pick, he says, did own it. Do you all have that? What page? Did own it, and not the first. 244. Okay. Not alone, and not the first, since as your authority states, man was dispossessed of Eden. Now, hold on to that. He was dispossessed of Eden. Go down a few lines. So let me say it, that nevertheless, and notwithstanding, old Carruthers did own it. Bought it, got it, no matter, kept it, held it, no matter, bequeathed it. Else, why do you stand there relinquishing and repudiating? That is, you can't repudiate unless somebody had it to repudiate. Held it, kept it for 40 years until you could repudiate, while he, this arbiter, this architect, this umpire, condoned, or did he, looked down and saw it, or did he, or at least did nothing, saw and could not, or did not see, saw, and would not, or perhaps, he would not see perverse, impotent, or blind, which, and he, dispossessed, and McCaslin, dispossessed, or what, and he, dispossessed, not impotent, he didn't condone, not blind, because he watched it, and let me say it, dispossessed of Eden, dispossessed of Canaan. And he'll go on to describe Rome. The fundamental difference between, this is really, um, there's God, so much going on. I never feel worthy to deal with this like I'm capable. There's just too much going on here. Notice Kaz's tone and his description of God. 
umpire, architect, arbiter, whatever we call him. He's a modern, very skeptical, and there's a little bit of contempt. But it's in a couple of things to note here. One is the argument begins with God, exactly where it should begin. Things came from him. We lost Eden and then got dispossessed of Canaan. So this is the founding level of reality that we've got to keep in mind as we move forward. Um, and then he goes on to include the Roman age and the Middle Ages. So what, the, what, the different, what, what sets the two men apart is something basically like this, if I can try to sum this up. Or maybe I should put it to you. What, you, what can you, anybody want to take a stab at that? What's the difference between these two men right now on the argument? How would you characterize it? What's the basic principles on which each of them stands that puts them against each other? Remember, I think I'm, this is an agog. This is a literary term, but it's it's one. Agon in the Greek means conflict, conflict. This is an agon between these two men, and it, it's from this word that we get agony. This is the fundamental, if, if you go back to Greek tragedy, there's always an agon between Oedipus and Tiresias, or, you know. Agon defines that conflict. It's from, it's, this, it's from this that we get <coughs> agony. This is the agon. What's the principle in each in which each one of them stands to produce this debate. This all reminds me of Chief Seattle. I don't know if you're familiar with Chief Seattle. Say again, Chief? Chief Seattle, who was a chief of one of the tribes in the state of Washington. The government tried to buy the land, and he wrote a letter to the president saying, how can you buy the land? How can you own the sky, own the water, yeah. and all that? And that earth is our mother. mother. And it's an argument of whether you can own the land. Yeah, yeah. One is saying you can't own the land, one is saying, right. you know, you can. Anybody add anything to that? Well, part of the discussion is how can you own something that outlives you? That man comes and goes yeah. and, and occupies the land, but does he really ever possess it? Yeah, yeah. Those are good. Hmm? Temporarily. Yeah. Another element of this quarrel is that that relates directly to this notion of sin. It, it has it has to include this in any discussion of what's going on here. Kaz is basically saying that we've inherited a condition since the fall, and he's saying I'm taking responsibility for it because that's what we've got. We're dispossessed. What the two men are going to go on from this point forward, what they're going to do is show that there are these widening circles or spheres of, what else to call it, fallenness. No matter where they turn, man fails. And there's evidence of it in almost every page. That's what they're showing. Kaz is saying, I'm taking responsibility for it. That's our condition. Um, and he's justifying it because we're all fallen. Ike is saying this, and it's very, very different, and I, I want to really get this clear. If we look at this as an epic, and I think we're, it's got an epic scope to it, 
we have to see that there's a fundamental difference between Icas and Epicure and Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante. Maybe the closest one is Dante, but there's nothing like him in, in Ahab or Ishmael. Um, Ike later will describe God as calling out Buck and Buddy. He, he said, there are these chosen ones. And we know that what distinguished Buck and Buddy from others is that they freed the slaves before the Emancipation Proclamation. They, they built the house and put the slaves there and they built a little cabin and lived there themselves. So one of the things that they did was make a choice for a goodness when they had no support from anybody around them. None. They stood out as men wanting to do something right because it was inherently good. Ike is describing that and, and he's saying maybe God chose them and they were called out because where he's going is maybe I'm called out. Maybe I can be a chosen one. He even likens himself to Isaac as the offspring. I'll get to that in a second. But, but he's different from the, from the epic heroes we've been looking at, it seems to me, in this sense. Every one of the heroes that we looked at, certainly in the ancient world, and even with Dante, were called out. They all had an appointed task. They had something to do that the gods called them to do. Um, Doc and I have been watching The Fellowship again. We just were looking for a good movie. We decided to go through it again. And, and um, if you remember in the beginning of The Fellowship, when the, when the Fellowship meets for the first time, when Frodo and Gandalf and Gimli and everybody else meets there in that, fair, that fairyland, they're on that plaza, it becomes clear that um, Frodo is appointed. That that's an appointed task that it, God gives it to him. He singled out. Gandalf understands it. Um, they, he even uses the word appointed. There's nothing appointed to Ike. There's nothing appointed. There's that passage uh, here, the sons of Ham on page 249. The sons of Ham, you quote the book, the sons of Ham. Um, this is, where, Doc, where is it? The sons, what is it? 246, three pages, oh wow. Anyway, he reaches that point where Kaz is pressing him um, there's that one verse. God bless. Um, oh, on page 271, I got at the top. Yeah, ah, he said, yes, if he could see father and uncle buddy and grandfather, he must have seen me too. That is, if God would have done this in the individual case, he could have called these people out, he might have seen me too. And Isaac born into a, lo a later life than Abraham's in repudiating immolation. Do you all have it? Fatherless, fatherless and therefore safe, because remember, Isaac was son of Abraham. He had, a, he had a father. Repudiated immolation, fatherless and therefore safe, declining the altar because maybe this time the exasperated hand might not supply the kid. Remember in the Isaac story, God conveniently provides an out so Isaac doesn't have to die. 
So Kaz says, um, so maybe this time he won't provide, supply the kid, and Kaz will escape. And he, all right, escape until one day. So he's acknowledging that he may be doing this to escape something. You know, that, that sacrifice, complete sacrifice may be asked of him. It's really crucial to see this. He does not do this because he's, it's an appointed task, at least not as we see. And remember, when, when they're describing Ike trying to pay off the debt and, and going in search of the, you know, those three living heirs, Fonzaba and James and Lucas, um, he, he, comes, he describes that point where Kaz meets that young black man who's come to marry Fonzaba, and he's so angry at him, and Fonzaba, but angry at this man because he's so arrogant. Um, he's like a politically correct, you know, he's doing what's right and, and standing there. And, um, and finally Kaz, or, or, yeah, Kaz says, enough, enough, stop. Later in the dialogue, it becomes clear because that's the language he says. He says, you didn't do it because you were called, but because you said it was enough. So one of the fundamental differences is Kaz is taking responsibility for a fall. Ike, as a free choice, as a free choice, is trying to do something good to answer the curse, this curse that's on the south. Um, and it's almost as if he's saying, enough, enough, this can't go on. So I don't think we're meant to see that it's like the gods have spoken to him and he's doing God's will. It's that out of something deep. But, but I want I I I, I to try to do justice to this. Remember, the Ike that we're looking at has been taught to see things differently. Sam put him in a different place. He had that experience with old Ben. He's learned to see things differently, to feel things differently. Um, now, keep that in mind, and just uh, now I want to go back for a moment to. Can I just ask a real quick question about No! That? <laughs> <laughs> it just seems to me like there's an opportunity missed here that, that I, I does, in fact, see something different. And, and, and in some ways, Cass is telling him you have an opportunity he sees in Ike that there's something unique there. If Ike had, instead of repudiating, if he had accepted that, that call, he could have, in, in, with all this preparation and all this uniqueness, maybe have made a difference that nobody else was prepared to make. That, that's something I... No, no, I, mean, you're, I couldn't agree with you more. That's the question I want to ask, but I want to ask it at the end. Sure. Because that's... We've got to ask that question exactly as you put it. Because that's a debate. I mean, what you've done is I mean, gone to the center of the debate because either we've got Kaz accepting it, who does not have Ike's gifts, and Ike repudiating it. Could Ike have done something? And I want to hold off. I don't want to, but I mean, that, that, that question goes right to the heart of where we're going to go at the end. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Um, here, hold on to that, because in two weeks, we've got, to, we've got to take up that exactly that question. Turn to page um, 
I've got 252. This is where we get the story. Oh, by the way, here, I've got to show you something. Um, on my page 250, you've got the two men talking about Buck and Buddy and the curse. Um, and it says, yes, more men than father and Uncle Buddy. Do you all have that? And then you've got that narrator from the beginning coming in saying, the yellowed pages scrawled in fading ink by the hand first of his grandfather. You all have that what page? 248. 248. Top, bottom. First, first real paragraph. Okay, put a mark there. I mean, just, I, I put dat or lines in the margin because this won't end until 269. So if you go over to 260, my 269, it'll end um, on 269 where it says all of it, that was all, and McCaslin. Do you all have that? More men than that one, Buck and Buddy, to fumble heed that truth so maze for them that spoke it and... Okay. Where do you have that? Middle of the page? 268 middle. 268 middle. Just mark that off. That should be blocked off because it, it's, a, it's, it's like an interlude we saw in Fire in the Hearth. It's an interlude. But go back now to 250, 250 or whatever your page is. The narrator comes in and he points to the ledger, yes? And we learn that, um, that Ike snuck in when he was 16. Snuck in the night when Kaz was asleep to look at this ledger with some sense that he was afraid what he was going to find and almost knew it. Now, on my page 252, in the middle of the page, it's got this line. They both looked as though they had been written by the same perfectly normal 10-year-old boy, even to the spelling, except that the spelling did not improve as one by one the slaves which Carruthers McCaslin had inherited and purchased, dash. Do you all have that? Mm -hmm. What page? Somebody just hollered these out. 249? And then it's got Roscius and Phoebe and Thucydides, yes? Mm -hmm. Now, look at that dash, okay? Now, hold on to that dash. Go down a few sentences. You've got an open parenthesis. It was a single page, not long, and covering less than a year, right? Mm -hmm. Where's the end of that parenthesis? Go over to page 254. At the end of those entries, you've got the very first mark took substance and even a short shadowing. 252. It says Christmas 1856 is one of the entries. Do you see right below that? The first th is, is a closed parenthesis. Have you ever right. seen a writer ever do anything like that? No. That's the close of that parenthesis. Okay, that's a parenthetical insertion. Are we together? Yeah. Do you have it? Now, take a, look. take a look at the sentence. Took substance in even a sort of shadowy light. What's the nominative, what's the antecedent of took, the verb took substance? Go back to that dash. Look, look ahead of the dash. That the spelling did not approve as one by one the slaves which Carruthers McCuslin inherited and purchased, dash, took substance in even a sort of shadowy life. Are you following? Now, I'm assuming you all got this and you didn't need my help. Do you see what he's doing? I always feel pretty good about just fittering at the first paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> now, now let me stop. Hold on. Does everybody see what I'm saying? You've got a dash, you've got an interruption of a sentence, and suddenly you've got 
It's like a, a positive, a long grammatical insertion that includes a parenthesis. And in the parentheses, what do we have? The ledger entrees. And then we pick up the dialogue. Now, why did Faulkner put that in there that way? To confuse us? <laughs> <laughs> then he did. Explaining the history of the because um, because that's what Ike's bearing within him in this debate. He discovered something that's at the heart of this hidden, right? Obscure, confused. Now, how, how not, well, I mean, let's stop. Let me just stop and make this personal for a minute. I'm assuming all of us have had moments in our life where suddenly this, the, that some disorder from the past, let it be whatever it is for any one of us, whatever, whatever disorder, sin, wounds, abuses, whatever, whatever it is that's a part of our past. I'm assuming that all of us know them, maybe shouldn't, but I'm going to say, um, that's, we're going along in our life as if everything, and then suddenly something triggers that and it jumps and it's almost like it bites us. It's like it's present now, as if it never left, because it's a part of who we are. Um, can, can a neat, tidy, grammatical form get to it? If, if what you're doing is being truthful to sequence, this happens, this happens, you know, I can, cows are arguing. Yeah, they're going on. As far as we know, it's not been interrupted. It picks up on 269 with Cass saying, and he, you know, the, the debate goes on. But what we've been given is this interlude. Why? Because it's, it's exactly what's at issue that's buried. And it's real. In some ways it's more real than... Or it's certainly what's at issue that the two men aren't getting to in the language that they're using. Now what's at stake here? Take a look at the entrees. Um, they tell the story about Percival Bramley. Who <laughs> they get this black slave and he's useless and, um, and the Buck and Buddy want to get rid of him. They can't even pay to get rid of him. Nobody wants him. And they can't even get somebody to sign the free papers because nobody will even sign those. And they figure out how much it would cost to justify what they paid for him. This, I'm going to make my page 253. June 13, 1856. How $1 per year? 265. It would take 265 years to pay it off at a dollar a year. <laughs> God. Who will sign his free paper? And what's equally fun, here, this whole thing about dialogue and language is, is so good. Talk about reading. The brothers are speaking to each other in the, in the entrees. You get the sense that they don't even talk to each other, but they come to the, the ledger to make their entrees and end up talking to each other. So there's so much going on about language and people using it and talking. Facebook today. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, don't you? God, I don't want to go there. It's, then they, they get this entry where it says, 3 October. Um, wait, wait, sorry. Um, um, <laughs> on my page 255. 3 November 1941. By cash to Thucydides, McCasman, two hundred dollars. Set up blacksmith, and they try. They try. This is so amazing. 
they tried to offer the slaves freedom. And all of them refused. I mean, this is one of the differences between the North and South. There's a familial attachment in these communities so that even the slaves don't want to leave. And in Thucydides' case, he wanted to earn it off. That is, you can't buy freedom or integrity. He, wanted, he was offered it out. He wouldn't take it. He would earn it. The pride is like Lucas, the pride of, that's at stake here. Eunice bought by father in New Orleans, 1807, $650. Um, married to Thucydides, 1809, drowned in Creek, Christmas Day, 1832. She and Thucydides has been married, what, 20, 23 years. 23 years married, and she commits suicide. Keep going now. Um, go down a few lines. The boy's father for 16 years before the boy was uh, born, remembering as sitting all day long in the rocking chair from which he cooked the food before the kitchen fire in which he cooked it, June 21st, 1833, drowned herself. Emphatic. And the first, 23rd, June 1833, who the hell ever heard of a nigger drowning himself? This is so amazing. This is Ike's father. Ike's father denies it. That's how badly he misreads. He can't, he can't even see what's at issue here. And we're learning right now that Ike is getting to the bottom. I mean, he's seeing, he's about to see a horror. His father wouldn't admit it. Who in the hell ever, I mean, it reminds me of the sheriff in um, Ryder. Who in the hell ever heard of an nigger drowning himself? And the second unhurried with a complete finality, the two identical entries might have been made with a rubber stamp save for the date, 8, 8 August 13, 1833. Notice the lapse in times that they drowned herself. And he thought, but why, why? He was 16 then. What happened when Ike was 16 that we already know about? He shot the bear. This is the year old Ben died. Now, I want you all to put this together. We just left three, section three, old Ben's died, dead, Sam is dead. He's reading the ledger at 16 and comes across this entry, she drowned. He was 16 then, it was neither the first time he'd been alone in the commissary nor the first he'd taken down the old familiar ledger as a child and even after nine and 10 and 11 when he'd learned to read, he would look up, he's learning to read go way down. Then he was 16. He knew what he was going to find before he found it. He got to the commissary key from McCaslin's room after midnight while McCaslin was asleep and with the commissary door shut and locked behind him and the forgotten lantern stinking anew and rank dead icy air. He leaned above the yellow pages and thought not, thought not why drowned herself but thinking what he believed his father had thought when he found his brother's first comment. Why did Uncle Buddy think she drowned herself? Finding, beginning to find on the next succeeding page what he knew he would find, only this was still not it, because he already knew this. Tomasina called Tommy's daughter. Remember Tommy's Turl? Who was Tommy's Turl and was? He's the one who dealt the hand, remember, the, the possible straight? Remember Tommy's Turl? He's called Tommy's Turl because his mother was Tommy, Tomasina. Tomasina called Tommy, daughter of the citizen Eunice, born 1810, died in childbed 1833, and buried 
Here the stars fell, not the next. Turl, son of the citizen, Eunice. Tommy Bourne, 1833. Okay, what's just happened? He's found the, hmm? he's found the uh, terrible secret. Which is? Well, to put it succinctly, I guess, Turl is both son and grandson to old Carruthers, uh, yeah. So what we know from these entries, or what Ike is putting, and remember it says down below, if you go down a few lines, to be paid, and, and here's where we get the sense that old Carruthers is trying to pay off his debt. He leaves the legacy of $1,000 to be paid to the surviving descendants of his line, the, the slave line. What we discover is that he had a slave he paid for, $650 units. He had sex with her. It, it's described here. He's, he's being a, a widower, is calling the slave in a girl. He had sex with her. They produced a daughter, Thomasina. Okay? He has sex with, apparently, he has sex with her. Um, when, when um, how does this go? Six months, six months after Eunice learns that her daughter is pregnant, she takes her life. Or three months into the pregnancy, yeah, Doc. Yeah, three months into the pregnancy. Yeah, six months after. She, she takes her life, so the implication seems to be that Tomasina was three months pregnant, and when she discovers that, I guess the discovery is she knows that the father of that child is Old Carruthers. <clears throat> so he, he has sex with Eunice, produces a daughter, Tomasina. Tomasina dies in childbirth, and um, Eunice takes her life three months into that pregnancy because she assumes um, that Carruthers is father. So incest. Um, he, he illicitly, misogynation, he illicitly sleeps with a slave. He has sex with his daughter. And, um, and his son, or the product of that relationship, is his grandson and son. By the way, the, one of the um, prototypes is not the right word, but the foretellings of this is Shakespeare's Pericles. Fogner would have read everything in Shakespeare. The same thing happens with Pericles. It, in fact, it's a riddle that begins the, you almost can't figure out it because it's, it's so dirty. That, um, so here, Ike has discovered that his grandfather had sex with a slave and it produced this slave line. And we got that from the beginning. Remember when Lucas would say he, was a, he had as much McCaslin blood in him? He says it is a matter of pride. One of the questions that I ask myself, I can't answer, does Tommy's Turl ever know? Does he have a clue? Who knows about this? Ike knows it. Who knows about it? Who's read the ledgers? You know? So when the two men are discussing this burden, to go back to my, the point that I was making, that, that I, I, don't, I don't have any... Ike has got this question whether God could have called anybody out. That he seemed to be there with his father and uncle, and he might be there with him if he looks at himself that he's an Abraham figure. Although one aspect of what he's doing seems to be an escape. He doesn't want to face immolation. 
But what we know for sure, because it's described as he says, I cast, there's that line where he wants to defend himself. It's actually at the end of that section that I just told you, 69. Yeah. Go on 170. 170 where it says escape. 171. Or, 170? or sorry, to escape and he, all right, escape until the one day what you told Fonzba's husband that afternoon here in this room, this will, this will do, this is enough. Not in exasperation or rage or even just sick to death as you were sick that day, just this is enough and looked about for one last time, for one time more since he had created them upon the dead. They keep looking in terms of what God keeps doing with his people and what the people keep doing to disappoint God. It's like the Jews. Just for a moment, um, I just want to point out one on page, Mike 273, Ashby's on an afternoon ride. If you look at that whole section, the next few pages, it's really wonderful because what we get is a description of the southern generals in the, in the war and, and the narrator talking about the stupidity of it, that this is a result of one man presuming that he can buy and sell another human being with money, that they're fighting a war for this. And the, in that paragraph at the, at the very end of that one, it says, it describes um, Jackson getting shot out of his saddle, and then it ends by saying, um, and Longstreet too at Gettysburg, and the same Longstreet, shot out of a saddle by his own men in the dark. Everywhere he turns, what he's seeing is that the Southerners are destroying themselves. The two of their, two of their leading generals were killed by their own men. And by the way, the, the prototype of that is, is Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. If you read Julius Caesar, you see that when Caesar's ghost comes into the picture during the Civil War, that Brutus and Cassius, who killed Caesar, undo themselves. That Shakespeare's, show, Shakespeare's showing us very clearly our own sins always, always, always undo us. And the, 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 the upshot of all of that earlier when, um, when Ike went to meet with that man that took Fonsberg, he says, don't you see, don't you see, the South is cursed. So what, what, what has unfolded here um, on these widening circles of of spheres of meaning is this sense of this great burden that men keep abusing the freedoms that they have. Um, and he, he says, even after the war, he says, we're not, free. we've never been free, we're not free. That in some ways we're not. So what's at issue between these two men is Kaz is saying, I mean, this is not his words, but implicitly what he's saying is that he's taking responsibility because they, they live in a condition of being dispossessed. What Ike is saying is enough, enough. That he's aware that of this sin that his grandfather committed and that wants to atone for in terms of money. He wants to pay off this debt through this inheritance as if a thousand dollars could ever do this. And what Ike is doing, like his, like his father and his uncle, in some way, I, but I don't think that's adequate, is he's saying enough. And, and I, we have to keep in mind what Sam Fathers helped him to come to.
that he doesn't look at the world the way other men do, that he saw the bear, he saw Ben, um, he lost everything with Sam Father's death and the death of old Ben, that whole world collapsed. He's 16 then, he's 16 when he discovers this. When he reaches 21, he comes to a point of saying, enough, and he renounces it. And when he renounces it, what we're gonna discover, if you've read it, you know, what, what we're discovering through this whole section four is nothing but loss. The stupidity of the war, the South destroying itself, they're killing their own generals. Um, the, the emergence of that, remember the three races that you described? You've got the, the blacks and the whites, and you've got these carpetbaggers, this, this descendantless, they have no ancestry, ancestorless. They have no ancestry, they come out of nothing. What they're doing is following success and feeding on it. So it's produced this new race of people that's um, parasitic. So, I mean, what we're seeing is South suffering from this curse and corruption, this guilt. And, and the, the section ends, if you remember, they're, they're talking about the inheritance that, um, um, what's Afonso's, starts with a B, Afonso's brother's name, the Buchanan, what's, Hubert. Hubert put all that money in that sack, remember as an inheritance for Ike, and um, over time keeps withdrawing from it and replacing these IOUs. So that by the time Ike gets that sack, which was full of all these gold pieces, it's empty. And by the way, this is just a prelude to section five because you know how section five ends. I don't want to go there with Boone at the base of the, I don't want to go there. But so what we're watching is the, the loss of the wilderness, the loss of nature, the city impinging, a modern world coming in, all the things that people live for, loss, and on top of that, Ike has discovered this curse. And it's on the basis of those things, the, the, the way he's been taught to stand with Sam, that he renounces it all. And when he does that, he's got Kaz to contend with, Compson's disappointed in him, Despain's disappointed in him, his wife says, if you ever want a son, it's gonna to have to come from somebody besides me. She will not have sex with him again. She is the woman, the figure who wants things. And because she won't get them, isolates herself from her own. So they're still married, but. So the Ike that we see here towards the end of four, I mean, compare it to, can make the, you know, make whatever, my, my suggestion is take a, look at, take a look at the disciples and take a look at Christ as he approaches that point when he has to give up everything here on earth, okay? That's where we are. Heavy, heavy note to be. <laughs> Let's, can we, st any questions, any pretty heavy place to be? He's an extraordinary figure. And if you've read Delta Autumn, you know it's coming next. I mean, this is almost only the tip of it, um, what he's going to have to deal with Delta Autumn. Mike is so good at picking, uh, reading signs, and how do you wind up with this woman who's not a name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<coughs> what can we say except all of us make mistakes? <laughs> what's the, what's the? Some of us get really lucky. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, not. I mean, I mean, but that was too glib. That was too glib. The other answer to this is, I mean, how do you know? I mean, you don't know. But but one of the things. I mean, one of the things you do know is that, or you hope for, is that when the moments of disillusionment come, in every marriage. I mean, if I if I were in a marriage counselor here, they, I mean, I wouldn't do what marriage counselors do for the Catholic Church. I mean, I the first thing I'd want to do is get clear with everybody that you're going to be dealing with sins in your life. So be before you take another step, know where you're going. Is you hope that you marry somebody who will bear those things with you. You know? I, I, what they do, when they talk about pre-Cana, I, I want to go nuts. And I want to get in, shake these pre-Cana people up and say, if you're not dealing with sins directly from the get-go, what are you doing? Because one of the things all of us have got to deal with when we enter into marriage. I know everybody knows this, but no? Well, anyway. No questions here on this? Every Is everybody clear on what's going on? You just tell me to wait. <laughs> mm -hmm.